Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio here with Mike and Stoyan. And new information has just, like a estrogen tidal wave of red tsunami-ness, has uh, come to light uh, from, let's see. Oh, it's in New York. It's actually an American magazine that's come across this. Mother of on-air murderer Vesta Flanagan had violent outbursts and threatened to kill husband and kids documents reveal. So we're going to have a little look at this because, uh, as you know, we're always interested not just at uh, trimming the leaves of the tree of evil, but hacking at the roots. So, of course, as you know, this is the mother of the gunman who murdered uh, two journalists uh, on live TV on Wednesday. And the article uh, goes, we'll put the link to this below, it's from the New York Daily News. The mother of the gunman had violent outbursts when he was a child and had threatened to kill her husband and her kids, according to court papers. The documents unearthed by the Daily News Thursday detail Vestra Lee Flanagan's parents' bitter breakup when he was eight years old and his dad's disturbing allegations that Flanagan and his two older sisters weren't safe around their mom, Betty. Vesta Lee Flanagan, senior, now 76, filed for divorce and an emergency restraining order in the early 1980s, claiming Betty's behavior towards him and the kids had been, quote, extremely menacing and threatening for months. Quote, she has also repeatedly threatened my life, at least on one occasion, threatening to shoot me in my sleep. And the children have heard these threats and are understandably upset. The paperwork obtained by the news said the worried father also claimed Betty, quote, threatened the children with a brush and a belt. And had I not removed these weapons from her hands, I'm certain she would have used them on the children. In his sworn statement, Vester Sr. requested physical custody of the couple's three kids uh, who were ages 10, 9, and 8 at the time. Uh, quote, she has, for example, threatened the lives and safety of her children as a method of attempting to keep me from leaving the house to go to work, he said. So, yeah, at least she had a good reason. Uh, quote, at other times, the respondent, Betty, is calm, rational, and charming, but the children and I are un- unable to anticipate or control these outbursts or threats of violence. Betty, who died in 2008, apparently did not respond to the claims with a sworn statement in her defense. A judge granted the dad's request and awarded him physical custody of the kids with visitation granted to Betty. The court also ordered Betty to move out of the family home, stay 50 yards away from Vestra Sr.'s workplace, and not, quote, attack, strike, threaten, or otherwise disturb the peace of the three minor children. The couple's final divorce judgment was granted in August 1982, the records obtained by the news show. It's not clear if Betty ever moved out of the family's house in Oakland, California, but she was living there for decades before her death. Uh, Vestra Sr. moved to Vallejo and purchased multiple houses on the same street for himself and his kids. So there's more. Um, we will put the link below. But um, what do you guys think? Uh, well, there's a little more, too, I'll just mention. I was able to dig up the mom's obituary because she died in 2008, so I'll just read that real quick. Retired Oakland Unified School District teacher Betty D. Flanagan, beloved mother, grandmother, sister, aunt, cousin, neighbor, and friend, departed her earthly life on October 10th, 2008 in Oakland, California. She served as a dedicated teacher with the Oakland Unified School District for over 37 years. She influenced the lives of countless students who attended. And then it goes through a list of her schools and everything like that. And it says she's survived by Vester Flanagan Sr., who is uh, Vester Flanagan's father, stepmother, Alice or something or other, which... So it says she came from a broken home as well because she had a stepmother. 
So that's not good. So she was a school teacher for 37 years. And there's this is online, and there's a guest book where after her death, some of her former students came and uh, relive their experiences and memories. And, of course, there's a lot of things, people saying nice stuff. Folks don't like to speak ill of the dead, of course. But uh, there's a few things that were in there that I thought were interesting that I wanted to read off. So these are from the obituary guest book. I remember a boy pushed a girl down in the hallway, and Miss Flanagan went out there and gave him the business. She told him, you're not a man, you're a mouse. Squeak, squeak, squeak. She said, I am Betty, Jean, Dolson, Flanagan, the boss in the barnyard, and I will not tolerate you disrespecting the young ladies. Now apologize. Another one is... I can easily remember her coming into the classroom with deodorant, a clean wet towel and soap, and telling the boys, Betty Flanagan's room will not stink, so take this and get on to the bathroom. She didn't play. Another one written all caps. Wow, Miss Flanagan, you were an awesome teacher. I was one of your students at Blah Blah Middle School. You were very bold and outspoken. I'll never forget you saying, I'm the captain of the ship. I'm the boss dog in the barnyard. I'm a Leo. I don't play. Wow. Those were the days. You'll be greatly missed. May you rest in peace. So this, uh, I'm the boss of the barnyard verbal proclamation. Those were, the days. Those were the days, you know, when you'd be verbally accosted by teachers <laughs> proclaiming that they're the boss of the barnyard. So for 37 years, you know, she not only raised someone who wound up being a murderer, but she also was in a school teacher for 37 years, influencing the lives of countless students, according to her obituary. So if I understand this correctly, the court said about this Betty woman, Betty Flanagan, that she was not allowed to see her own children, or at least she was not allowed to parent her own children because of the allegations, which she did not respond to, of threatening to kill them or kill their father or kill everyone if he goes to work. So the court said, you basically are not allowed to be a mother to your own children. And this had zero effect on her value as a school teacher. Your children, you're threatening to kill, and we've got to keep you away from your children. The children of strangers, though, yeah, here's 37 years worth of paid leave with, with summers off and benefits and all that because... I'm sure you're just wonderful to other people's children, even though you threatened to murder your own. And she was she was granted visitation, despite all these allegations. It's like, okay, I mean, in the court system, the husband or father getting custody of the children is a rare occurrence in and of itself. That's a pretty extraordinary circumstance. So all these allegations, all this stuff, there's obviously some issues there. But even that being the case, the judge is still like, eh, visitation. You know, you threatened to shoot your husband while he was sleeping. The children heard all this. You were going to beat them with objects and, you know, all these fights in front of the kids. Kids are terrified. But, you know, you can, uh, they can have visitation. They can come see you. You know, they can have a vacation to Crazy Town. That's okay. Well, we don't know. don't know if they were supervised visits or not. They may have been uh, supervised visits. It doesn't say in particular But uh, it is quite astounding that this level of violence is, uh, these poor children are exposed to this level of homicidal female rage. And what I find absolutely astounding, and to me this is in some murky way, and tell me if I'm way off base here, this is the key to the whole thing, 
is that when he was suing this uh, company, uh, this this uh, media outlet, the one whose uh, reporters he shot, when he was suing them, he demanded an all African American female jury. Now, his mother had been a homicidal maniac threatening to shoot the father in the sleep and kill the children and beat them with brushes and belts and all that kind of stuff. But he wishes to be judged and, and values the justice capacity of African-American females. That's a I don't know why. That just, that's really, I want to be judged by someone just like my mom. I want to be validated and, and told I'm right. Yeah. By yeah. the people that were just like my mom. I mean, if, if someone said to me, I don't know, uh, let's have uh, elderly traumatized German women judge you, I'd be like, can we not do that, please? That would be excellent. <laughs> that would be really great. Because So to me, he did not process the evil that was done to him. And he still remained bonded with it in that he wanted to be his entire case to be judged by people like his mother. And that to me means that you've Stockholm syndromed with... I mean, gosh, I don't need, this is just outright criminal behavior. I mean, this is the other thing, too. Why the frack is this woman not in jail? Yeah. Why death threats are illegal? Try sending one to a congressman. Death threats are illegal. How is, is she not in jail? She was doing the best she could with the knowledge that she had, Steph. Well, I'm glad she didn't have the knowledge of how to actually shoot him in his sleep. Oh, God. In front of the children. Death threats. Death threats to the father in front of the children. And what does it show to the children that she's not in jail and she's still allowed to work with children? She has threatened the lives of children, threatened the lives of her husband. Now, we're just going to assume this is true because she didn't respond to it. And uh, it stood in the document, as far as I understand, understand unchallenged. We're just, we obviously can't verify it 150%, but we're just going to go with it's true at the moment. But um, the kids look at this and they see a justice system that never punishes the perceived victim. That never holds the perceived victim accountable. And in these situations, of course, the female is almost always the perceived victim, especially in America. And I wonder what effect that had on him when he got older, realizing that the courts will never pursue justice against the perceived victim. It's like the women who accuse men of rape, and it turns out to be false. They're almost never pursued uh, for making false statements to the police uh, and so on. And so when you see a justice system that always parts around, like magic, parts around the victim, it seems to me that then when he tried to use the legal system from a victim standpoint, where did he learn that from? That's a great point. There's something else, too, which I was thinking about. Uh, boys, generally, they will emulate the father, but as a gay man, I would assume that he was looking up to his mom a lot more. Which may explain why he hadn't processed it to this degree. And why he basically why he took his mother's approach yeah. to anxiety and stress, right? His mother uh, threatened people with death. 
yeah. uh, and uh, you know, threatened the father and the children with death when she was stressed and anxious and upset and angry. And uh, if um, uh, if he bonded with her, then this would be his go-to position, particularly later in life. Another layer of this, too, is he was a Jehovah's Witness and grew up in that environment. And, you know, given that he grew up in that type of moral infrastructure where there's rules and a code and all that, seeing this happen by proponents of this faith, which I don't think it says in the faith at any point, you know, shoot your husband while he's sleeping. Um, well, at the same time that people continue to profess being believers of this faith, not only was his faith in the justice system eroded at an early age, the court system but also the principles of morality, which he was taught as a child. Yeah. And Mike and I were talking, talking before we recorded, we put together the first show, and we were discussing the fact that there was not much information available in his childhood, and we were speculating about what it was. And Mike, you said, I wonder if he was raised by a single mom. And I, I, back then I said, I doubt it, because Jehovah's Witnesses are very committed in general. Yeah, I don't know the rate of divorce in the Jehovah's Witness community at all, but yeah. it it is They're pretty strict about it. Yeah, he does come from a divorced family, which oddly enough, maybe not oddly enough, when you look at the data, Dylan Roof and Elliot Roger, same situation, coming from a divorced household, lots of family conflict, lots of problems. This is not a coincidence, folks. Um, can I? And I just, if you guys are in the middle of something, I just, I had another. No, go for it, Seth goosebumpy thing that that I, I sort of worked out can you just guys just look up how old was um vester flanagan jr uh 41 41 okay so vester lee flanagan senior is now 76 and he got a restraining order and filed for divorce in the early 1980s which was 30 it was say 82 right so 33 years ago right yep vester lee flanagan is now 76 and so 33 years ago, he would have been 43 in his early 40s, right? Mm -hmm. So this guy went homicidal at about the same age as his father was when he divorced his mother. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Another interesting caveat. Well, these, these patterns, I've noticed them in my own life. Like I was in a relationship that was not great and... Um, I ended up getting out of it just one day. I'm like, I'm done. And afterwards, I realized that I was exactly the same age as my father was when he left my mother. These uh, patterns, uh, I think they go deep, deep in the brain. And the fact that this guy went, I mean, how angry was his mother when his father left him? I mean, this is a woman who was so terrified of any kind of abandonment that she threatened to kill him for going to work. So when she left him, there would have been a near bottomless amount of narcissistic, psychopathic, and homicidal rage in the woman's heart. And I just wonder the degree to which he may have been acting out his mother's anger against his father because he hit the same age when his father left his mother, and that's when he snapped. Again, we'll never know. It's just a, I find these patterns show up quite repeatedly when you start to look at the, the ages and the times of uh, these incidents. Well, and, you know, with, with him, there was many warning signs. You know, there's the, the typical after the, not only the lawsuits, 
there's reports of him like throwing cow or excuse me, throwing cat poo at neighbors from balconies and just conflicts across the board with people. So there's all there these was, warning uh, signs. Road rage incident as well prior to the shooting. He was recorded. Oh god. So I watched there's all that. these Did you did you watch that? No, I didn't even know about this before the call. Yeah, so so and did you did you see it? I only saw parts of it where he was uh, yelling. Yeah, so some guy, uh, he was Vesco uh, uh, Flanagan Jr., the, the shooter, was driving like a maniac, and some guy told him to s- smarten up or slow down or be a better driver or whatever at a, and then the, then, and, at a stoplight uh, and then, uh, or traffic lights. And then Vesco Flanagan followed this guy uh, and then was you know, basically screaming at him uh, and all that uh, while the guy was trying to get to his place of business or something like that. So, yeah, there were a few signs. <laughs> and <laughs> That's perfectly normal behavior. I I guess that guy's looking back saying, well, that could have got a whole lot worse. Oh, (laughs) yeah. People to comment to on the highway. You picked the wrong one, but it worked out for you, thankfully. But again, with with all of these situations, you know, the Elliot Rogers situation, the Dylan Roof situation, the Vester Flanagan situation, there's all these warning signs long ahead of time. You know, Elliot Roger, I mean, was diagnosed by a psychiatrist. They gave him antipsychotic medication to treat schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And, uh, you know, no type of relationships outside of home, very isolated. He got beat up at a party for threatening people and was horribly injured. There's like all these warning signs of stuff is going off the rails and no one says anything. Dylan Roof, you know, got picked up a couple times by the cops for, uh, going to this mall and harassing, acting very strangely in this mall and harassing some of the mall employees. And, and having drugs on him. Yeah, they found Suboxone, which is a narcotic used for treating opiate addictions, but it's also used recreationally. And there's been some signs that it's also linked to violent outbursts. They also found cocaine, methamphetamine, and LSD on him. That's just what they found on him. God knows what he was using otherwise. Um, some... He said to his friends, I'm going to go and shoot up a whole bunch of people. Yeah, you know, and, and I think he gave dates at various times. He said, like, yeah. oh, six months from now, I'm going to go do this. And then he's like, next week, I'm going to go to the college. It wound up being a church. But, you know, it's like all these warning signs that are emanating throughout society and history and people seeing them and just eh, look the other way. Nothing's going to happen. I actually read an article. Someone was saying, yeah, you know. There's there's kind of the things you see, and nine times out of ten, it's nothing, so you don't really worry about it. It's like nine times out of ten, it's nothing. That means one time out of ten, it's something. If it's never nothing. Ten... It's just that the something isn't always shooting up a church or shooting up reporters. It's always something. It's just not necessarily that murderous. doesn't hit the news <laughs> nine times out of ten. Oh, God. Yeah. And there is, of course, this, this culture of... Mental illness, which is to say that, you know, what what pulled the trigger? It's the gun's fault. It's white people's fault. It's something. It's mental illness. It's no, there's a, a human agent in there, right? There's a human agency in there who's making a series of decisions that make them crazier and crazier. Like when you when you have a particular passion, uh, it can be great. You know, passion can be wonderful, but it can also pull you down to a very dark place. And when you have a particular passion, you need to expose yourself to counter information just to make it, you know, sharpen the sword on the West Stone, right? Muscles grow through resistance. So if he had this perspective that, 
everybody was a white racist and that's why he couldn't get ahead, then I'm guessing, I don't know if they'll ever release his browser history or anything, but I'm guessing that uh, he would go to some very anti-white websites and, and uh, uh, he would start to feed, you know, feed that obsession, feed that feeling of grievance. But one, and, and that's really, really dangerous. And then people say, well, it just happened. No, he made particular choices. Everybody knows that if you have a perspective, there's usually opposing information out there that if you're intellectually responsible and a decent human being, you expose yourself to it. Uh, but if you don't, then just feed this beast and feed this beast. You're going to get yourself more and more wound up and and upset. And then, boing, boing, oh, I couldn't see it coming. It's like, well, it came from a long time. And it is fundamentally his choice and his responsibility uh, in the end. And... Um, but this is culture, sorry, it's culture of mental illness where people say, well, he was just mentally ill. Like, what does that explain? Mental illness is like the new demonic possession. Well, he just guessed Beelzebub won in his heart and therefore he went crazy. And Like, it doesn't mean anything. Mental illness explains nothing. It's just this tagline that says, well, clearly he had disordered thinking and acted on it. So we're just going to label that an illness as if that adds anything to the equation whatsoever. It's like saying, well, he was irrational. It's like, okay, but why was he irrational? Why wasn't anyone around him correcting him? How many people are responsible for feeding the irrationality that he had? How many people in the media? How many people online? How many people in his, you know, did he get together with a Kill Whitey study group? I don't know. But it, it, just saying mental illness explains absolutely nothing. And what bothers me is that if there was a culture where everyone said, my God, you had this kind of childhood, you have got to get to a therapist, not to some pill pusher, not to somebody who's going to load you up as if you've got some biochemical deficiency. No, you had a rather excess of abuse in your childhood, which has created disordered thinking. Go and get yourself straightened out. Go to a talk therapist, go to a CBT therapist, go to someone who knows what they're doing in terms of unraveling and dealing with this trauma. There's an old saying in psychology that says that uh, all mental dysfunction is the result of um, uh, the avoidance of legitimate suffering, right? This, this, this guy suffered staggeringly and unbelievably and awfully as a child. And I don't know in the community in general, and I certainly don't know, but I suspect not in the black community, is there this, oh man, you got to get to a therapist. Like, stop thinking it's white people's fault. Because my question to this guy, if I met him, Vester Lee Flanagan Jr., who's raging about white people and so on, I would simply ask, tell me the race of who did you the most harm in this life. Mm. Tell me the race of the person who gave, who gave you the most trauma, who inflicted the most suffering on you in this life. And he would have to say it was black. And I'd say, okay, give me the gender of the person who inflicted the most suffering on you in this life. And he would have to say a woman. And so if you say it's a white male culture that's causing all this suffering, but the reality is the most suffering you have by far had inflicted upon you was a black female then aren't you kind of running away from your problems and isn't it just going to escalate because they just chase you and get bigger when you run? There's actually an interesting dimension to this and it ties into something you said earlier because death threats are illegal. And if this was a man who made those threats, he would be in jail. Now, the fact that a black woman was not put in jail by the mostly white justice system in the United States would that not provoke some resentment? Well, we do know there are great disparities between male and female sentencing. Like, yeah. And we talk about this in The Truth About Male Privilege, the degree to which for the same exact thing, same criminal history, I mean, men are getting years where women are getting months. It's, it's completely absurd. And this was also around the time of the feminist revolution. 1982, I think, was uh, when they got divorced. 
Yeah. But that second, I think second wave feminism was starting up then. Yeah. But yeah, it certainly was. Uh, it was the, the super mom and the, the power suits and the wide lapels and all that stuff. So there was definitely a lot of female power floating around. Yeah. And, and what, one, go ahead, sorry. This woman was not put in jail. She was not put in jail for what she did. Nope. And, and she, she was got allowed to, visit. to see her children. Yeah. yeah she and got she got to, to teach for 37 years. Other children. Yay. 30 in a class, I'm sure. How delightful. You know, th this guy, I mean, from a background standpoint, he had a lot going against him. You know, he, he was gay, and he was a Jehovah's Witness. And uh, we brought up these stats in the last video, but they're worth repeating here. According to the Pew Research Think Tank, Jehovah's Witnesses are the least tolerant of homosexuality amongst religious groups, surpassing both Muslims and Mormons. Overall, 76% of Jehovah's Witnesses agreed with the statement that homosexuality is a way of life that should be discouraged by society. For comparison, only 68% of Mormons and 61% of Muslims agreed with this statement. Uh, I, I had no idea about that with the Jehovah's Witness community. So there is friction there. Another issue has to do with physical violence in the black community towards children. Uh, one study that examined 20,000 kindergartners and their parents, researchers at University of Texas at Austin found that 89% of black parents had spanked their children, compared to 79% of white parents, 80% of Hispanic parents, and 73% of Asian parents. And spanking, as we've gone over in many presentations, it's shown to lower intelligence, increase aggression, violent behavior, lowered language capabilities, increased antisocial behavior, increased likelihood of engaging in risky, unprotected sex, considering he acted as an escort later in his life, eh, increased likelihood of being sexually assaulted, and a whole bunch of other horrendous, horrendous things that uh, if you want the full details of the problem with spanking, I recommend the Primordial Violence, Spanking Children's Psychological Development, Violence and Crime by Murray A. Strauss. It is a collection of so many studies on the effects, the horrendously negative effects of spanking, which he unquestionably, I think we can safely say, experienced given the prevalence in the black community and what was said in the divorce papers regarding belts and spoons or other things that were being used and threats that were being made. It's, uh, so he had a lot going against him early on. And was there any type of intervention from society? Did anyone say this is not okay? There's no indication that anyone did. And there's all these warning signs. I mean, oh my God, you're, you are a gay, black, Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> Victim of horrendous child abuse. Coming yes. from a divorced family background, like, there are so many red flags and warning signs here. And what happened to this guy? He was in his apartment and seemed, lived alone, minimalist apartment, not a lot of stuff around, doesn't seem like he had a lot of friends. Where was his family? Where were these people? Uh, his mother died in 2008, but uh, actually something was just published in an article that I read right before we did this about his father and how the father is being um, treated right now. I'll just read that real quick. Um, they're swarming the dad's house, essentially. Um, the elder Flanagan, who's 76 now, was described by a neighbor as a perfect gentleman and an upstanding citizen. Others said he's known for organizing neighborhood safety meetings and tending to his vegetable garden. You know, maybe instead of organizing neighborhood safety meetings, you should organize safety meetings with your son 
who's spiraling into just madness. I mean, and this is over a course of many years. And, you know, I, I hope you grew some nice tomatoes, sir. I really do. But your, your son... Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. Your son grew a rather red flute called Blood on the Sidewalk. <sighs> no kidding. But I wonder, I wonder if the father well, Steph, had... let me just uh, finish this real quick. I'm so um, sorry. Go ahead. This is from some of the neighbors, which, again, puts it in perspective as to nobody doing anything. Neighbors said, it's such a shame that something like this would fall down upon him, referring to his father, uh, said a neighbor. It's inconceivable to me, and I'm sure he's distraught. Whatever happened is not a reflection on him. Oh, everyone immediately when this type of thing happens, we must immediately excuse anyone in the vicinity of someone that does something horrendous. It's not their fault. Nope, nope, can't hold them accountable. There's no responsibility for parents. No, 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 not at all. It's like you raised someone that wound up murdering people on live television. You, You know, it's not your fault. You know, I knew this guy. I saw his vegetable garden. Maybe I went to one of his neighborhood safety meetings. But, you know, he's not, not responsible. I know, you know, because I was there the whole time, saw everything that happened, know all the details. He's not responsible at all. Good God, people. People just don't flip like a switch and change. This, you know, mental illness is used as a, uh, an excuse. Like, he was mentally ill. It happened. You know, mental illness doesn't just boop, pop into existence either. People that are mentally ill, more often than not, there's fundamental reasons why they're having these dysfunctional problems rooted in their history. And the scientific literature shows that many times over. You can look at our ACE survey, the Adverse Childhood Experience survey, which we talk about a lot in the show. It details that very, very, uh, very well. And oftentimes it's also dose-dependent regarding trauma in childhood to violence and dysfunction and a whole litany of other social issues down the road. So this, he just changed. No reflection on the parents. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit and another neighbor um another it's it's very sad for him he's one of the nicest men i know and this quote which completely blew my mind which let me just grab the um someone actually referred in the ultimate denial of all responsibility referred to the shooter as a gentle giant he was a gentle giant he was very nice to me and my family i was shocked Gentle Giant. Where have we heard that before? At this point, Gentle Giant, when it's referred to in the media and portrayed, I just assume it's a violent black guy who's done this. It's a joke, right? It's got to be a joke. Uh, No, no. Another Nabel said he was a gentle giant. Michael Michael Brown portrayed as a gentle giant by the liberal media right out of the gate. You know, after he strong-armed, robbed a convenience store, and then punched a police officer in the face, tried to steal his gun and shoot him. You know, Gentle Giant. This guy who murders people. Uh, on national television, or local television, he's a gentle giant. He was very nice. I was shocked. He was very nice to me. I, uh, how could this happen? He was very nice to me. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I just wanted to mention that I don't know of any nice men who give three children to homicidal women. I don't know of any, uh, any nice men like that. Mm, well, this, this the was referring one. to the shooter, the gentle giant aspect. This was referring to the shooter. No, I, I was talking about a previous uh, comment that he was a nice guy, the father. Yeah. Yeah, we talk a lot about female responsibility in the show because it's not talked about a whole hell of a lot. But uh, way to go, Dad, here. A whole lot of... Well, he did, you know. I mean, obviously, it was a horrible mess to get involved with this woman. And they had children like a year apart. Uh, That is a mess and a stress. Uh, And, you know, to his credit, he did manage to get them away from this homicidal mom, this uh, murder mom, Incorporated. 
Um, but that's making very much the best of a very bad situation because he waited until they were eight, nine and 10 years old when they had gone through years and years and years of chaos and terror and violence and screaming and death threats. And it didn't start I mean, the day before he filed the papers. That's pretty. Yeah. No, no. I mean, so so um, he had to have his own. The father had to have his own significant dysfunction. And um, and it's not, you know, within the black community, as it is within a lot of communities, it happens in the white community as well. There is this uh, this massive dysfunction within the family. And the, they don't have the general tradition, which some cultures have, of, okay, I'm going to go and get help. I'm going to go talk to someone. I'm going to go deal with this. This is very unhealthy. And the degree to which he saw, his, the, the, the shooter, saw his mother repeatedly getting away with all of this stuff. Uh, she was probably still accepted within her Jehovah's Witness community. And she was she described was still, as one of the school uh, superintendents or whatnot as a very nice lady. Very nice yes, lady, 37-year career. Yeah, her, her, like the society said, this woman is great to work with children. This, this woman who flies death threats at her own children is a great person to work with children. There was no sanctions against her from the court. Uh, and so that is a very, you know, when you refuse to deal with evildoers, you simply train other people to have courage as evildoers. Right. It's like if, if there's a store, two stores, one prosecutes shoplifters, the other one never prosecutes shoplifters. Where the hell are the shoplifters going to go? I mean, this isn't even brain surgery. So if you don't deal with the evildoers in your midst, then that doesn't always mean jail or anything like that. But at least stop saying how wonderful they are. If you don't deal with evildoers, what you do is train the next generation of people to choose evil as a way of life because they know that no one's going to do anything uh, about it. And um, this is the price that is paid for this kind of avoidance and this kind of self-falsification of reality. And when something like this happens, the solution is gun control. That's, that's what's discussed and that's what's I mean, talked that was about. Really the issue here. She threatened to shoot him. <laughs> so there's, there's gun control right there, Mike. You don't see it? Oh, God. I mean, uh, the gun would have killed the man, not the woman. And the, I wanted to, I, I don't know if this is going to make, be, be helpful, but if, if this young man had been adopted as a child by a white family and the white father had threatened to kill him and beaten him black and blue and so on, right? I think people would say that the white father had something to do with it. And I'm not trying to put a racist lens on everything. What I'm sort of trying to point out is that this is the blank spaces where we can't really look very easily as a culture. Yeah. Because, because white males get the blessing and the curse of 100% volition. You know, <laughs> no excuses. It's all your responsibility. It's all your fault. If you're a racist, well, let's say you were raised by a white, racist white male. Doesn't matter. You're still 100%, 100% responsibility accrues to the shoulders of white men. And so if a white man had uh, beaten up this guy's mom uh, and, and had threatened to shoot this guy's mom in her sleep and and had threatened to kill him uh whatever right then we would look at that and say well of course this has a huge impact on this young man's development but because it's a black woman like they get teleported out of the narrative and suddenly it becomes about this weird vague systemic white racism or something or patriarchy or something like that 
But no, it was the acid womb of his mother that was threatening his life, as far as we know. I don't know if the dad threatened his life. We don't. We haven't really heard anything about that. And of course, talk, court documents tend to obviously be kind of one-sided. But no, she was a horrible human being by all accounts. And this had a massive impact on his development. And to ignore that is simply to sow the seeds of future abuse. Because I'm telling you this, last little rant here. Oh my God, this is so, so important. This article that, that came out about the mom, I'm telling you, there are millions of evil and abusive moms throughout the world who are reading these articles and they are, they are sniffing the wind. They're reading these articles and they're saying, ooh, so what's society going to say about this? Is society going to connect the dots? Is society going to say this mom was a massive causal agent in the homicidal, psychotic, rages, and general assholery of her son? Or are people just going to cover this up as usual? Are they going to just say, well, you know, she had probably experienced child abuse herself, and uh, she... Um, uh, she was a victim, of course, uh, an, an, an underprivileged black woman. And are they going to start covering up this crime? And we all have this impulse to do it because, you know, they're moms. And of course, you know, blacks and so on. So, but there's lots and lots of, this is why how we respond to this is so important. So many millions of horrible and abusive moms and dads, I guess, but in this case, it's moms around the world and in America looking at this article, and here is a clear crime, a clear series of crimes, a clear series of homicidal, revolting, disgusting, evil abuses perpetrated by a mother upon her helpless children. And all the moms out there who are abusers themselves are saying, ooh, what's society going to say? Oh, it's okay. Everyone's ignoring it. It's all being covered up. She was a wonderful woman. She was stressed. It was difficult. Raising kids is hard. She was black. She was underprivileged. Oh, good. Lots of excuses. And you know what? That means I can expect my excuses in the future, too, so I don't have to change a goddamn thing about what I'm doing to my kids. And that's not independent to this situation at all. It's a, something that once you see it in the media, you kind of can't unsee it. When they describe a female crime, more often than not, there is an excuse attached to it, whether it's mental illness or bipolar or postpartum depression or, you know, someone provoked it. Yeah, there's, you know, you see a woman who drowns her children in the bathtub and then there's always, there's a caveat attached to it more often than there's not. And you never see that when it's men being described. The men are just, oh, this is an evil man. That's okay. We can accept that. No, white men. (laughs) Well, that's the other caveat is when talking about criminal activity, if you... If, if a race isn't mentioned, you know it's not a white guy. You know it's, it's someone that's black or someone that's Hispanic. That's the, and the only way you can figure it out is if you, you know, maybe do a Google search for the mugshot or something. But the degree to which the media kind of covers the tracks of these types of crimes and not holding individuals and groups responsible, it's... It has huge impacts on the society in which we live, and it allows events like this to continue to propagate because people are constantly scanning the landscape to see what they can get away with. And if society isn't holding people accountable, people, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, they know that. Oh, man. You, you, you play the – because we, you know, we follow crime. 
and we do some brave stuff on the show. And so naturally, when a crime occurs, um, if if it's relevant, right, like if a bunch of whites get shot, yeah, it could be another white person, could be an Asian guy, could be anything, right? But you only know it's a white guy if it's in the headline. Yeah. And, you know, how, how long did it take to find out the race of, uh, say, Officer Michael Slager or um, George Zimmerman, who was described as a white Hispanic, or Darren Wilson, yeah, how long did it take to figure out their race? White cop shoots unarmed black teen. Boom, right there in the headline. And immediately the reason is racism, too. Immediately. Well, of course, that's implicit, right? Yeah. 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 And this, you know, this this is the latest in a series of, right? That's always the phrase, is the latest in a series of a historically troubled relationship between a criminal community and the cops. I'm not calling all blacks criminal community, but it tends to be the criminal community in any group that has the most problem with the cops and so you and you have to play this game and and this one was completely mad because i first saw it showing up and uh i was like oh gosh you know i wonder what's going on and i looked at it and i think like a lot of people because of the exposure and so on i said oh gosh this is a white guy how terrible right i mean how how awful and then i saw i uh, saw another picture he looked at the dark i thought yeah is he muslim or is he a middle eastern i don't know right and then uh, it turns out that he's black but this is how insane it is. This guy's on the run. This guy is on the run. And the cops are saying, please help us find him. You know what would be pretty helpful in helping you find someone? Knowing their skin color is kind of a big clue. You know, he has a tiny mole over his left eye. And he has some partially healed earring holes in one ear. He walks with a slight limp if he's wearing a particular set of kicks. I mean, it's just like, maybe just tell us the race. Can, can we start with that? Because I can see that for the most part across a parking lot, that tiny mole I can't. And so be on the lookout for X. Be on the lookout for biped. And it's like, <laughs> what? Can, can, can we get a color here? Would that be helpful? Can we, can we do any of that? No, because what you have to do is copy the guy's name, paste it into Google, Click on images and try and find out what race he is. We're not going to tell you. Be on the lookout. It's like, I've lost something. What is it? I can't tell you. Find it. What? <laughs> Can you get, is it circular? Does it buzz? Does it beep? Does it have wheels? I'm not telling you that. But there's a huge reward for finding the X that I... And it's like, oh my God, can we just tell the race? Especially if... if especially, like they're putting people's lives in danger. Because this guy's out there, he's got a gun, he's got nothing to lose. Tell people what race he is so people can avoid him or call the cops and he won't kill someone else. They literally would rather people die than say what race this man is. Oh, even after the fact, when it had come out that he had been involved in these racial discrimination lawsuits and right around the time where um, some quotes from his manifesto came out where he said that uh, the Dylan Roof situation inspired this and he bought his gun you know days after the Dylan Roof situation and his bullets had the victims names marked on them kind of thing um even while this was kind of floating around there was still plenty of news outlets that didn't mention his race they would have one picture of him that would be very low they they'd lead with the you know the pretty blonde lady that shot. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might have a leftist virus there, Stoy, and you might want to see some reason. Yeah, something something stuck in my throat against white guilt. And they would they would phrase the the racial discrimination lawsuits aspect in a way where it sounded like he was involved in a discrimination case, 
making it sound like he was discriminated against. Not that these were dismissed or anything like that, but it was phrased in a way like he's the victim. And, you know, this guy just shot two people, well, three people, um, one thankfully lived, on, on local television. And they're still kind of covering up his racial discrimination case history and portraying him in the positive light, not saying his race. And maybe there's a photo low on the screen, which it's overexposed to some degree. It's just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And look for this, people. Seriously, don't just take our word for this stuff. We, we've linked to a couple articles in the previous video. But when you read the news, look for this stuff. What you don't see is just as telling as what you see both when it comes to gender stuff and racial stuff. And it, it really helps illuminate the media and the game that they're playing when you finally see this, because it is everywhere. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's compare. So Dylan Roof, um, which pictures were shown in the media with regards to Dylan Roof, the Charleston shooter? He's standing in front of a Confederate flag. He's posing with a gun. You know, he's got his shirt off. He's looking creepy. He's got this Rhodesian jacket on and all that, right? Creepy guy in the woods with a thousand-yard stare. Same thing with Jared Lona. Same thing with Adam Lanza. Same thing. Just creepy, evil-looking guys, right? Now, the picture that you see most often of this guy, this 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 black shooter, is uh, his promo shot. There's lots of shirtless when photos in the media. floating around. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's not what you're seeing in the mainstream media, uh, but you're not seeing those those pictures. Uh, and uh, this is another thing, too. Uh, same thing with Trayvon Martin. They show him as a fresh-faced 14-year-old boy or whatever it was, rather than him breathing out marijuana smoke and, and uh, giving the finger to the camera and so on. Uh, same thing with Michael Brown. You know, here's a picture of Michael Brown at his graduation ceremony <laughs> because he had big dreams and he was off to college and he has, he's turned his life around. And it's just like, oh, my God, can we stop treating blacks like ornamental objects, like children? They, they're as capable of evil as anybody else. And uh, they have as much responsibility as everyone else. That's the reality of what happens when everybody wants equality. It's the same thing with women. It's, oh, we want to be equal to men. Okay, fantastic. Uh, then you all need a bit of an education on what it's like to be a white male, which is to have zero excuses for anything. And nobody covers up everything that you do. And everyone paints you in the worst possible light. And you're impugned with racism, even if you're not racist. If you ask for equality between the racists, you're a racist. And so, uh, like, if you say, oh, well, let's get rid of preferential hiring policies for all races. Oh, my God, that's racist. You want equality of opportunity between the races? That's racist. This is the insane Alice in Wonderland world that you live in. But that's the reality that, that people need to just uh, accept that uh, they're responsible for their own behaviors and the degree to which all communities refuse to to recognize and deal with the connection between child abuse and adult violence is the degree to which we are complicit and we are enabling this cycle of violence when we recognize that the abuses that this young man uh, particularly as a child suffered were horrendous and had significant necessary but not sufficient cause, right? I mean, it's, it's inconceivable that he would have murdered people without being serially abused as a child, but not everyone who's serially, seri seriously abused as a child ends up murdering people, so it's necessary but not sufficient. Not and everyone who gets we, lung cancer is the... Yeah, and, and the degree to which people excuse these crimes, and the degree to which there's this sickening, splendor, syrupy kind of sentimentality about things uh, is, uh, is just horrendous. Uh, that, that is the kind of stuff that has to stop. Uh, and um, I, I don't know, we, we're doing everything we can in this conversation to remind people 
uh, of this cycle of violence. But the cycle of violence is almost always and forever ascribed to men. Uh, but of course, uh, um, women are the ones who choose their mates. And, you know, men propose, women dispose. Men ask women out and women say yes or no. I'd like women to slow down have. and go through this point by point, too, because this is something that um, we've mentioned on the show quite a bit. And it's, it seems to really short circuit people for reasons that make complete sense to me. You know, if, if you start talking about female responsibility and that's something that you've dismissed for your entire life, all of a sudden you being exposed to this argument, you have to reorient yourself not only to the world, but the people in your life all throughout your life. You know, if you're. 30 years old, 40 years old, and you hear this for the first time, for 30, 40 years you've gone on where this has been obscured from you, both in the media and with the people around you. And then you kind of have to morally calibrate where people fall along those lines once you introduce responsibility. As sad as it is, yes, yes, people are responsible for their actions, folks, this, and this includes women. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that it does. So let's, let's do the female responsibility argument from, like, step one. Okay, so step one is that uh, women um, usually have a lot of guys who ask them out on dates. This is not just true among human beings. It's true throughout the animal kingdom that men put on a mating display. And this is true from frogs to <laughs> birds. Like men put on a mating display and men build elaborate nests and men put on uh, their best. They put their best foot forward and then the women choose who they're going to, uh, to mate with. Women fundamentally drive the choice of mating in human romance not just human romance all uh romance within the animal kingdom for the most part as well so people that have an issue with that statement you have an issue with biology by the sounds of it and um the studies that i've seen 90 to 95 percent of the time the man is asking a woman out on the date for the first time so yes there are examples of the man saying yes or no and um saying no to first dates and women asking out, but it is overwhelmingly prevalent that the women are the ones in the position of saying yes or no to the male suitor. This is just observable fact in biology, and all the surveys reflect this, and I'm sure this reflects most people's personal experience unless you're a pickup artist. Right, in which case you're dating a book. But anyway, um, so... So women are the ones who choose from a variety of men who ask them out in general. And men throughout the animal kingdom almost never say no to sex. And they've done these studies where attract, like they've done this with single people not to mess up relationships, but an attractive woman goes up to guys in a bar and say, let's go like in a hotel bar and say, let's go upstairs and have sex. And the vast majority of men are like, sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What, eggs? I'm in. <laughs> And so men are just, we're programmed to want to have sex with very little discrimination. Um, and, you know, we're basically like frogs with a pond, you know, <laughs> spray and pray. <laughs> hey, maybe some woman will walk over this and <laughs> they'll jump up her leg. And right. So that's and this is throughout the animal kingdom. It doesn't mean that men are not responsible for making good sexual choices or anything like that. We're just talking the general trends. These same studies, when attractive men go up to women and say, let's go upstairs and have sex, the women quite wisely and rightly say, ew, pepper spray, security. <laughs> Not necessarily in that order. So very few women will go up and have sex with a random strange man who's attractive. But the majority of men will do that. It's a significant majority. I can't remember the exact numbers, 70, 80 or 90% or whatever, because, you know, I guess Vesper Flanagan might have been in one of those <laughs> studies. And so um, men propose and women dispose. So women choose who they're going to have 
children with. Uh, and they're in the privileged position of being pursued, of most of the first dates being paid for by the man, uh, of the man taking the initiative, of the man moving things along. And so when a woman ends up married, like dating, getting engaged to, marrying, having sex with, and having babies with a man who's violent, a man who's abusive, a man who leaves her, that's more her responsibility than his responsibility. Because, you know, it takes two to tango, is what people always say. You know, both people are involved and responsible. It's like, no, 90 to 95% of the first dates are initiated by men. The majority of, of uh, expenses uh, are paid for by men in the early dating. And yes, you probably know certain exceptions, but so what? There's a Chinese guy in the MBA. That doesn't mean that they go to China for the majority of their recruitment. And so... Women are responsible for who they choose. And women have the chance to choose from more than one man uh, in, in most situations, particularly if she's reasonably attractive and so on. Um, the women have the capacity to choose from more than one suitor. And they have the chance to evaluate the man's personality and character, usually for years before they decide to have children. That's really, really important. Uh, women have the capacity to evaluate a man's character for years, usually before she decides to have children with him. And it is the woman's responsibility to determine the character of the man she's having children with. Now, again, we're just talking about it from the female's perspective. Of course, uh, this, this Flanagan senior, senior was a terrible guy for choosing to have kids with this homicidal woman. I can only assume that she was too hot to make his brain work or something like that when she was younger. Considering after the, the divorce, they bought multiple houses or he bought multiple houses for him and the kids. Uh, I can see indication that yeah. he financially was doing pretty good and mom was probably very attractive as typically is the case. <laughs> dad your dad is rich and your mama's good looking. Yeah. So, so sorry, do we going to say story? Yeah, Vestucinio is, uh, according to this article you read, a football star. And last I checked, they don't go after the uh, ugly woman. Oh, yeah, the dad, Vesper's dad was a, uh, a football star, right? I don't yeah. know that star is accurate. Football player. He had a, he, it seemed like he had a more of a... Former college football star is what, uh, what they say. I think he, had he, was drafted by the Green, no, he was drafted by the Green Bay Packers, although there's no evidence that he played. So, but uh, high status. Uh, yeah, high status uh, guy. And if the dad looked anything like the shooter, when the shooter was younger, he was reportedly a male model. And there's these pretty buff pictures of him, you know, good looking, uh, good looking young man. There's video and, of him on uh, the catwalk, actually, for a modeling. Show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That right. was one of the videos that he had uploaded to his YouTube account, I believe, before this had occurred. So Right. So, uh, you know, so good looking and all that. So uh, given that men will have sex more easily than women. And all women know this, right? All women know this. this is not this is not a mystery. So, given that men are much more eager to have sex than women are um, initially in a committed relationship, it's fine. But uh, the women are responsible for making sure that they keep their legs crossed until a quality man comes along. That's the deal, and that's the way it works throughout the animal kingdom. It's frog male privilege, or whatever you want to call it, right? <laughs> but uh, you know, plumage privilege, one hundred and one, uh, and so. Women are responsible. And so women say, when women say, the, the father of my children left me, yes, the man was wrong. Absolutely. And, and we've had about 5,000 years of being upset with men about that. And that's, yeah, you should not leave for sure. But we don't ever say to the woman, 
why did you have children with a guy who was going to leave you? Either you chose a guy who was a bad guy when you had months to evaluate or years to evaluate his personality, you still decided to go ahead and have kids with him, you idiot, or he was a good guy and you were such a shrill and horrible human being that you drove him away at the expense of your children. So the idea that we place female responsibility at the center of reproduction is very, very alien because men don't like to criticize women because then they'll withhold their eggs and we suffer gene death, right? So the genes for criticizing women and holding them responsible, uh, I think we have the last set of three uh, in the, <laughs> like we are the three musketeers of uh, final, no, there's of course lots of other people out there uh, as well. But uh, I think that is um, something that people have a tough time uh, understanding. And uh, th this is why we talk about women's role in the cycle of violence. Stop having sex and having children with violent and aggressive and unstable and abandoning men. Stop, stop banging himbos and the world will become a much better place. But this is something that's very hard for people to process. And I want to say, too, for anyone that's hearing this argument for the first time, or even if it's not the first time and you're having a strong negative reaction to it, take a deep breath, calm down, and go through the points that we just mentioned point by point and feel free to try and refute it. It seems pretty axiomatic for me based on the evidence. So just take a deep breath. I know this is something that if you're hearing it for the first time, it's hitting you like a tidal wave, I am sure, because this is something society tends to obscure. And, you know, it's a big thing to take in all at once. So just take a deep breath. Keep it in the back of your mind. Don't, uh, don't immediately reject it, but just give it some thought. Give it some thought before you post that negative comment down below <laughs> and uh it's uh look at those news articles too and see that and this used to be known yeah. this used to be very well like i uh, you know i have some big influencers in my life and some of them of course are 18th and 19th century novels no i'm not quite that old uh, i know i look that way to some of the younger youtubers but um and in the 18th, 19th century novels, um, women were constantly cautioned, you know, don't go for the rake, don't go for the pretty boy, don't go for the guy who's flashy with no substance, go for, you know, the solid, hardworking, responsible, decent, you know, don't be seduced by looks. And, and men were, of course, warned about the same thing. And women who broke that covenant, women who had children outside of marriage, women whose husbands left them were viewed as idiots who'd squandered their potential in the pursuit of petty lusts and perhaps status if they wanted a, a 10 piece of man candy on their arm or something like that. So I was raised very much and, and read a lot of those novels when I was younger. And that used to be, you know, just look at Downton Abbey, that used to be the way things worked, that you didn't have sex until you were in a committed relationship with a quality man. And you certainly didn't have sex that could lead to children. You didn't have unprotected sex and so on. And so this is how society worked for approximately forever. <laughs> Until the welfare state came along. And when the welfare state came along, the government could replace the man and therefore the women's standards uh, of quality for the men that they wanted to have sex with collapsed. And they went for, now it's all about six packs, not virtue. Now it's all about, uh, you know, um, the guy over there with the hell of good hair or whatever it is, right? Not the guy over there who looks really stable and responsible and gets up early and <laughs> does what's needed to uh, supply uh, goods and, and cheese to his family. Yeah, the welfare state removed the negative consequences of making a poor decision when it comes to who you had children with. And then the women said, um, th then women were able to say, I'm now a victim. Because if in, in the welfare state, if you can achieve victimhood class status, if you, if you can get yourself inserted into the victim class, then you get this endless conveyor belt of taxpayer subsidized, unborn subsidized, debt subsidized, counterfeit currency subsidized goodies. 
if you can convince people that what happened to you wasn't your fault, that it was an accident, that there was no way to predict it. And this is why you have all of these stories uh, of the women who were like, well, he seemed like a really great guy. And out of nowhere, next thing I knew, I couldn't believe it. But, right, Mm -hmm. so then they get to portray themselves as victims, which never would work in a free society, but works very well in politicians buying votes with other people's money society. And something I want to point out, too, um, this is from our Truth About Single Moms presentation, which I encourage everyone to check out. Uh, Child abuse by parent. Uh, Both parents, 21% of all child abuse. Mother, 49% of all child abuse. Father, 22% of all child abuse. And if you go to mother and other, which is normally, you know, step-parent or boyfriend or that kind of thing, 7%, and father and other is only 1%. So when it comes to the violence that's committed against children, it is the mom committing it more often than not. And and there's also statistics on child abuse by family structure. And without question, single parent with partner is the worst for children when it comes to child abuse. And then it's single parent alone, and then unmarried parents, and then all the way at the bottom as far as rates of child abuse is married biological parents. So single parent with partner and considering there's a whole lot more single moms with partner versus single dads with partner out there because dads don't end up getting custody more often than not. Um, it is the moms being involved with the majority of violence being committed against children. And another thing worth mentioning is when it comes to spanking, which we talked briefly about some of the incredibly negative effects, there is, in a self-reported survey, 64% of mothers admitted to spanking their child in the previous 12 months compared to only 58% of fathers. So when it comes to self-admitted spanking, mothers are more likely to spank than are fathers. And the sample also found that 65% of boys were spanked compared to 58% of girls. So there is a gender gap when it comes to spanking. The boys are hit more. They're more likely to be hit, and they're also hit far more often than the girls, unfortunately. And if I remember rightly, the um, prevalence of child abuse in a single mother with non-biological father around is over 30 times the rates of child abuse in a two-parent committed family. And the safest place for children and for women is in a pair bond committed, usually married relationship. Uh, Everything else, the further you get away from that uh, center, uh, the, the worse outcomes there are for everyone in the family, which is one of these things that is just, again, kept from the media. Sorry, Stan, you were going to say? Oh, nothing. I was just uh, going to agree with you. And we already have so much information, and you can look up uh, some of these statistics on our channel as well, that um, female abuse against children is one of those, it, it is one of the most prevalent forms of violence in our societies. What Vesper Flanagan did is by far the exception when it comes to violent actions, and ignoring those, ignoring the hidden abuse, is going to just ensure more acts like this like these are going to be perpetrated in the future, which is sad, but it is the reality of the societies that we live in, especially in the West. And this is how crazy this is, right? And and once you have this, we've also got 
the truth about violence, which, again, you really, really, I'm sorry, to load you down with too much research. You really need to watch this stuff because once you get it, you get how we can solve the problem of violence in society. And but until you everything get it, is sourced, you know, everything's broken yep. down. There's a lot. It's all these are all information based presentations where we make this case incredibly thoroughly with data, because please be skeptical. Don't just take our word for it because we're saying this. Look at the information. It's it's incontrovertible looking at it. Well, you can take Stoyan's word for stuff. We've always found Mike fairly shifty. But Stoyan, Stoyan is our barrier to enthusiasm. Um, the wet blanket on our fire that consumes our common sense. I found this very but, interesting piece of data. Oh, the source doesn't check out. Thanks, Stoyan. Yeah. <laughs> Stoyan has taken it out back and put it out of his misery. Um, but um, the once you once you get what the source of violence is, which is violence against children... Uh, we've got, of course, The Origins of War in Child Abuse, a, a book I've read by Lloyd DeMoss, which you can get at freedomainradio.com slash free. But once you really understand this, then when you see this mainstream ma- media narrative, which is that somehow there's this abstract, institutionalized white racism that pushes people to the boiling point and then it spills over in senseless and tragic, always use the word tragic, senseless and tragic acts of violence and so on. And... Um, once you recognize that the cause, the necessary but not sufficient cause to Vesper Flanagan's murderous rampage was not Mike. It was not Stoyan. It was not myself. It was not some abstract white identity that's out there creating monstrosities uh, in the black family. The cause, necessary but not sufficient cause, of Vesper Flanagan's murderous rages and outrages and and outbursts and rampages was the violence he suffered as a child at the hands of his black parents and his black community. And that is what needs to be driven home. Uh, The idea that you can uh, somehow blame the death threats he heard and received at the hands of his mother on some vague institutionalized white racism is so far off the mark. It's so far off the mark when you really understand the cause of it that it is not even, you know, there's a great statement by Richard Dawkins where he says, this theory is so bad, it's not even wrong. Like, it's, it's not even wrong. It's just a massive distraction. It's like two plus two equals unicorn. It's not even wrong. It's like, I don't even know what it is. And, and this thesis is so destructive. And when we avoid the suffering of children and the avoid pinning the moral responsibility on the chests of abused parents, we simply set the stage for this kind of uh, recurrence. Yeah. All of the other excuses are smoke screens to the root cause of the problem. And you can keep hacking at branches if you want, or you can go straight to the root, which is where you're going to get the preventative effects. You know, you don't want to manage these symptoms. You know, like, oh, there's violent people. We need to restrict guns. Well, all the evidence shows that doesn't work, first off. But even if it did work, it's not getting to the root cause of where this violence is originating from. And that has to do with violence against children. And all the science proves that pretty conclusively. So... Yeah, it's like it's like trying to get to, it's like trying to cure lung cancer by getting people to throw out ashtrays. You're dealing with an effect, not a cause. So, is there anything else we wanted to add? I think we've given people a mind-bending tour through <laughs> new information. I think that's it. You know, it's um, 
ever since the Trayvon Martin situation, then followed up with the Michael Brown situation, Eric Garner, there was a Walter Scott situation, then we had Dylan Roof, and now we have this shooter. I mean, this stuff doesn't seem to be slowing down, and the racial polarization and the gender polarization in the media as well is not slowing down. And I really just strongly encourage people to be skeptical when you read this stuff. Look for the, what we mentioned in the articles. What's not said oftentimes is just as important as what is said. And, uh, you know, don't, don't rush to judgment often as well in some of these situations. You know, look at the facts. Look at the evidence. Don't immediately jump on the pillar of racism or something like that or, you know, male hatred or misogyny, something along those lines. Just look at the facts, take some time, and uh, we're unfortunately probably going to be seeing a lot more of this, which is depressing in and of itself. But hopefully we can get some of the facts out there as to the real cause and prevent some of this stuff in the future. So thanks, everybody. And the last thing I wanted to mention was um, when you are tempted to make excuses for people, that is a sign of bottomless disrespect for them. You know, we make excuses for children. We make excuses for people who have significant cognitive dysfunctions. Um, We don't make excuses for adults. And when you feel the urge to make excuses for women or for blacks or for Hispanics or for, you know, I guess it rarely happens with whites. But when you have this urge to make excuses for people, you have to understand that you are expressing a form of superiority over them. Like, oh, you poor little dears, you've had it so hard, you, you're not responsible for what you do, it's everyone else who's making you do stuff, and, and this, is, this is so fundamentally disrespectful. I have great respect for the black community, I have great respect for the, for the community of women, for women as a whole, and that is why I will not make excuses for their behavior. Uh, that would be such a fundamental sign of a disrespect. I have a daughter growing up in this world. I don't want her to grow up in a world that makes excuses for every mistake or every bad thing that she may do. Uh, I want people to hold her accountable. I want people to hold me accountable. And I will hold other people accountable because there are very few people on this earth that I will give such a level of disrespect and contempt for that I will remove from them the responsibility of free will. We all have it, and to strip it from others is not an act of kindness, but an act of disrespect and dehumanization, which we must resist at all costs. Beautifully put, And and when you put up smoke screens to cover up legitimate dysfunction, you're just ensuring that in the future more smoke will be coming out of guns. And we saw that. We saw that. All right, so please like, subscribe, uh, please like, and share and subscribe. Uh, and, um, of course, we take donations at freedomainradio.com slash donate if you'd like to help us continue to do the work that we're doing with your help and your participation. We look forward to your comments below. Thanks, Mike and Stoyan, of course. Uh, always a pleasure to chat. And uh, take care, world. We'll talk to you soon.